0: Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hello and welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, our podcast series with me Ellie Duncan, I'm head of editorial and broadcast at Open Banking Expo and Today's discussion is all about the latest report from Bottom Line, which is called The Future of Competitive Advantage in Banking and Payments. Now, you may recognise it because we have covered it on our our TV episodes in the past, looked deeper into some of those findings. Well, the latest results are in from more than 500 banking and non-banking financial institution players across areas, including Treasury, fraud, operations, innovation, product and technical implementation at sea level in 32 countries globally. So it's a really comprehensive report and the topics in there include real-time and instant payments, cross-border payments, ISO 222 messaging, compliance and regulation, cash positioning and fraud monitoring and also pre-validation. So the report addresses the question really of how financial institutions measure up against each other in terms of meeting customer expectations and also in their digital payments modernization strategy. And joining me to discuss some of the key findings are Jenya Winter, who is head of global marketing, financial messaging at Bottom Line, and her colleague Edward Ireland, who is joint head of commercial product management, financial messaging as well at Bottom Line. So welcome to the podcast, both of you. Thanks very much for having us. We're absolutely delighted. Thank you. Got quite a lot to get through, really, uh, and we oh, yeah. do um, better get cracking. <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> Let's not waste a, a second more time. Jena, why don't you give us uh, to start off with just some background to the report and and why it's worth anyone who hasn't read it already kind of downloading it and and, and giving it a good read.
1: Yeah, thanks. So, um, as you said, this is our third year of of running this um, survey that then leads into the report with the results, and yeah, we're we're very pleased with the amount of. Um, responses that we've had, um, and all the geographies that are covered. I think, really, the, the importance of the report is it's all about that competitive advantage. You've got to understand what's happening in the market, what 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 other banks and FIs are doing, and, and that will vary regionally. But we're all aware of these busy roadmaps, um, and there's a lot for banks and FIs to uh, to focus on and prioritise. But are they getting that right? And does that match up to what their corporate customers are asking for? So ultimately, in my view, the sort of secret to being competitive is making sure that you're aligned with your corporate customers and you really are delivering on what their expectations are, whether that's real-time or whether that's actually just making sure that they feel safe in the payments that they're doing and looking at those sort of pre-validation fraud prevention tools But I think um, what we're lucky, you know, bottom line, we're very lucky because we're a global uh, business payment company. So we do, this report's focused on banks and FIs, but you're also going to see data that Edward and I are going to discuss, which comes from the um, business barometer, which is the corporates being asked those questions. So really that 360 view is so important. We're always telling banks and FIs, get away from silence. It's all about having that end-to-end view. And so we need to do that too. We can't look at results in isolation. It's so important. And we're going to touch on the different geographies, not only what they're prioritizing their roadmaps, but looking at things like adoption of real-time payments, what their view is about barriers for cross-border payments. And they're going to vary. You've got Europe that's really heavily driven by compliance and regulation. You've got APAC with all their exotic currencies and trying to remedy those issues with correspondent banks. And um, so they're looking at uh, getting really to grips with cross-border. And then obviously in the US, they've had the TCH for a long time, but they're now starting to pick up the pace with the adoption of, you know, said now back in June, 2023. So there's going to be a lot of variance there, but I want to be a reassuring that we're very lucky, particularly um, Edward and I within financial messaging that, Whenever we have conversations about real time, we're also always talking about cross-border. We're also talking about fraud prevention, the the, the merits of ISO 20022 and what it can do for operational efficiency. The same with SaaS. So, yes, there's lots of disparate things happening, but they're all interconnected. And that's really important. Edward's going to cover the open banking angle, you know, what we're doing to drive the importance of, of APIs. How important it is for standardisation, to you know, for speed to market, and also for easier implementation, and how that ties into things like pre-validation. So we've obviously got COP in the UK, but pre-validation is going to be extended. You know, obviously you've got um, bits and pieces coming in as a separate instrument mandates looking to be ratified, and then issues with bank account verification with SWIFT. So I'll leave that up to Edward, but there's lots to cover, and we're really excited.
0: Well, fantastic. Let's start off then with a question for you, Edward. Leveraging the data from the survey, does the report indicate that banks and financial institutions are on track with their digital payments modernization strategy? And if not, then what are the reasons for that?
2: Yeah, so so it's a, it's a it's a it's a broad question. So the digital payments modernization strategy, that's a, that's a massive piece of work for the banks. And in, in terms of trying to understand whether whether all banks are on track or not with that is sort of there are different ways of looking at it. Obviously, you can look at the the services and the functions that they're offering to their customers and the way that they're engaging in the market. Uh, and the way that we can uh, ascertain that as well is to look at the appetite of those institutions to adopt SaaS services. So we know that institutions are not going to be able to build themselves everything that they need in order to move along their payments modernization journey. They're not going to be able to do it themselves. I mean, there are a few banks that are going to be able to do it themselves, and even they probably don't want to. But the majority of institutions are going to have to adopt platform services in order to be successful on this journey. And so one of the things that we can do then is to look to see what is the appetite for the adoption of SaaS services and moving to the platform of institutions in different geographies. And so, for example, we can see that there's been really quite a strong increase within uh, the Asia-Pacific region for the adoption of SaaS services. So up to 73% now of institutions are willing to use SaaS services now in Asia. That's really increasing. It's always been relatively high in Europe as well, uh, but it's still quite low in America. And that may be because there's much more of a domestic focus due to the nature of the size of the market in, in the U.S., this doesn't feel like there's such a driver. And in Asia, particularly with the, with the number of different countries and geographies that tend to interact with each other, then we can see much more appetite. And perhaps they are coming from a, a culture where, where there was more resistance to SaaS services, uh, and now institutions are getting more comfortable. Those services are getting more secure, more reliable, better infrastructure around compliance, liabilities, and controls, and so on. And so they're willing to adopt those services more and they can see that in order to be successful on this journey towards digital modernization, payments modernization, they're going to need to adopt those services and we can see that picking up in the in, in Asia Pacific particular which is really encouraging.
0: Shenda, did you want to add anything on on this point about the the payments strategy and, and bringing it into the modern age? Any other findings you can highlight?
1: Well, I think, you know, Edward's covered it very well there. I, I think essentially when we talk about SaaS, you know, and I've said this before, you know, SaaS is SaaS, it's it's, it's it's not particularly new, right? We've been talking about it for a long time. And tech is tech. What makes SaaS exciting, and also if you ally it with solutions like ISO two, is what it can do to address that, the priorities in, in roadmaps. You know, you have the capability To be able to deliver that speed to market uh, with SaaS, to be able to leverage best practice, to be able to easily comply or more easily comply with regulation because it's going to be automatic. And also there are cost implications, scalability, all the things, all the attributes that SaaS has is, is what's exciting and what it will mean in terms of that busy roadmap, prioritization and getting that elusive operational efficiency that everybody's after.
0: So lots of lots of potential, basically. Let's come on to to another area. So I'm interested to hear from both of you, what are the top priorities that were identified by banks and by financial institutions over the coming sort of 12 months? And are they aligned with what their corporate customers are demanding? Um, so, Xenia, I'll come to you on this first, if I can.
1: Yes, that's great. So the, sort of the main priorities were well, real-time payment rails and um, extending the REIT, and that was the top priority. And then we come on to mitigating fraud risk. And now I'm not surprised by those two. As I said, real-time is table states, and you're seeing a lot of real-time schemes being rolled out and obviously compliance issues around separate industry. You've got the new payments architecture and ramifications around that. Fed. Now you know I've touched on all of those, and I also want to address this this preconception of faster payments, faster fraud. You know the assumption is that you know if if you if you can benefit the merits of real time, that also means you're more susceptible to fraud. And I don't really actually think that's the case anymore, because you know through that collaboration, we're really looking at best practice. In terms of what we can deliver, we've got lots of tools out there for fraud prevention and fraud mitigation, and it's not actually that real time payments are are a more dangerous rail. It's just the fact that there is the issue of it being irrevocable and you've got less time to check it. But we're getting we're developing tools which edward will will cover later, which to use that word mitigate. It makes me think really that it's, it's, it's not such a concern. And so please don't be too worried about it. In terms of other areas that were important. So I talked before about compliance and regulation. So, the, you know, the region that really heralded that the loudest was Europe. And we touched on it before. There's a lot going on. And I, I think regulation is a good thing because it drives best practice. And it means that we are almost preempting what our customers are going to be after, so those were the three top priorities in terms of how they and I went back before and said so competitive advantages making sure you're doing what your your corporate customers are after so good news that the corporate customers again they did list mitigating fraud and real time payments right up at the top. There were a few other things that weren't addressed or weren't prioritized when we asked the banks. And, and that's all around that cash positioning, that real-time balance. And it ties, guess what, right back into real-time. Because you've got the you know the, the 24 hours, seven days a week, three, six, five days, you really need to keep an eye on what money is going in and out. So I think there needs to be more work on, on positioning those tools within the banks, prioritizing them, maybe doing some education around it so that the banks can really make sure that the corporate customers are using all the tools that are out there. And the other one is fair and transparent pricing. So you say, well, that's really obvious. But actually, it was listed way down as one of the lowest priorities for the banks. And it's going to be a global issue that, but particularly when you're looking at regions like APAC and, you know, the rest of the world. And by that, I mean Africa, I mean... Um, I mean, Latin America, you know, so so those territories where really there's a lot more price sensitivity. We all know have banks that we have to price things differently. And certainly, Edward and I are aware of that from a vendor point of view. So there are, you know, close but no cigar. There are bits and pieces that need to be improved, but we're on the right track, which is excellent news.
0: Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. And let's pick up then on on that point around regulation. As you say, no surprise really that um, it's a uh, biggest concern is is to be found in in Europe. Obviously, you know, re- regulatory led open banking and payments has has been the norm in the region. So, uh, Gena, what's the view of the importance of compliance and regulation over the next twelve months? And was there any signs that financial institutions are worried or concerned about meeting some of those deadlines, which, as you said, are, are numerous?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, so well the, the global stats were when we asked them how important is compliance going to be over the next twelve months. Well, sixty-nine percent it was going to said that it was going to be more important than the previous twelve months. Twenty percent said it was going to stay the same. I think that's very optimistic. Twenty percent said it would be less important. And then you've got um, those that just weren't sure. So I think I agree with the fact it's going to be more important because there's a lot coming down the pipeline for us. But I think probably what's more worrying really is that 88% said that it was going to be very challenging or challenging to remain compliant over the next 12 months. So that's that's a big percentage that are really looking to their laurels. And then you add, you know, seven percent who, you know, who don't think it will be challenging. And maybe those seven percent are so innovative and so um, far-reaching and far-sighted that they've already prepared for it. And um, because we know that these mandates are coming, and what happens in in the UK, what happens in Europe, chances are it's going to be extended elsewhere globally. So countries like, you know, America, where potentially they're not as regulated. Um, as we are in Europe, you know, they can't afford to relax because it's going to come their way eventually. I think, as I said, I keep saying it because I really want to hammer it home. You know, the the European banks and FIs are really on it in terms of compliance and they're slightly more relaxed, as I said, (laughs) um, in North America. But compliance is a big deal. And by prioritizing your roadmap, by preempting it, by using tools like SaaS to get speed to market, by having things like ISO that if you solve for ISO, you're potentially solving or doing the doing this sort of structure for a lot of the other things you need to do, then you're on your way. But Edward, I mean, anything that you want to add to that?
2: I was picking up on Ellie something you were saying earlier on about you know uh, there's the, the compliance requirements or the regulatory requirements that that are financial institutions have and then also the customer demands that they have and i think there is an alignment between what the regulators are asking for and what the customers are asking for as well so i think that this pressure that fis have on them to to deliver against the regulation but also to meet their customers demands is some somehow is is complemented by what they're being asked to do so if we look at in, uh, in Europe, for example, with the European Commission that are coming out now saying that instant payments have to be provided to customers uh, across the European payments area. Uh, and that's exactly what the customers are asking for. So that, that's regulation and customer demand aligned. And if you think about in the UK with the introduction of confirmation of payee and the requirement that all payment service providers uh, offer this, again, this is something that customers are asking for. And it's reducing uh, APP fraud. So it's very much complementary with that digital payments journey uh, and regulation going hand in glove to provide customers with what they need. Now, of course, the challenge is still that it's a massively congested roadmap for the bank. So, you know, so they want to do all of this stuff. I don't think they don't want to do it. It's just that, you know, how many people have they got? How much expertise have they got? And how much bandwidth have they got to deliver against all of these things within the timeframes that that either customers are expecting or regulators are demanding? And so that's where that I think that's where we're seeing that crunch point. And obviously, as a as a as a SaaS provider, we, we, we're able to support customers in some way by providing outsourced solutions. But that roadmap challenge is really there, and I, I feel for the TFIs in this this time.
1: Yeah, I feel sorry for them too. But uh, you know, there is a lot going on, but. They can't expect to do everything themselves. You know that's not that's not possible. That you know you need to look you need to look towards yeah outsourcing it or even having a hybrid integration model. You know we're going to talk about APIs later, right? Yeah, there's a lot of guys out there that are, are experts in in developing APIs. That's fine, but when you come to things like well I say niche, but you know if you come to solutions like getting ready for switch, you. And the solutions that are going to be part of the Swift Essentials rolled out in January 2024, that does take a lot more expertise and knowledge. So leave that to people who have been doing it inside out for, for a really long time and focus on what you can do and what your IT guys can kind of deliver without any worries about issues with testing or whatever.
0: Yeah, I think those are some, some, some very wise words there, actually. And uh, I guess, Edward, I wanted to, to come back to you on, on a particular question about um, ISO. So how important is the transition to ISO 222 native in helping to solve some of the key priorities uh, that you know, you've know both already identified there for, for banks and FIs? So as you've said, fraud mitigation, real-time domestic and cross-border payments, etc. Uh, Edward?
2: Yeah, so um, it, it's it's critical uh, to to the to the journey that we're on, which is why it's mandatory. You know, it's why it's why it's why market infrastructures are insisting on institutions moving towards ISO because they know that the only way that we're going to get the digital transformation that we're looking for and be able to provide the payment services which customers are asking for, we're going to have to have a better standard to work with than the legacy formats that we've had before. So that this, this journey towards ISO has absolutely got to happen, and it will happen because it's being mandated. And of course, naturally, institutions have spent a lot of money on this, and uh, they want to see where they're going to get the benefits. And that's becoming more apparent, actually, as we move beyond this sort of mandatory enablement period that we've been going through towards true adoption of ISO, and how do we get to use it, and how do we start to see some benefit from ISO 20022. And I think we're going to see uh, a couple of areas that you you, you alluded to uh, where we're going to see the first benefits. And, and in terms of improved operational efficiency, social cash positioning, we're going to see better reconciliation with ISO. So we've got across market infrastructures, the use of the same standard. So we're going to have better reconciliation of data across different uh, market infrastructures and payment systems that are being supported. So we will see that. So, so customers will see that fairly quickly. And then what we'll also see is improved uh, monitoring of financial information. So the ISO 2022 standard, one of the things that it does for us, and one of the first benefits that we'll see, is a huge improvement in the way that institutions and individuals are identified. So better naming, addressing, structuring of that information will come through with ISO. And the first benefit of that will then come from the reduction in false positives and a better understanding of who is the payer and the payee. And that will provide enormous improvements. And it might sound like it's a bit sort of, uh, you know, like a small thing, but actually the number of payments that have to get stopped is really very large. And it's a significant cost for institutions. And this will be reduced by the adoption of ISO 20022.
0: Yeah, some really, um, as you say, some some really important points made there. And let's move on then, I, I guess, to another part of, of the report. But Edward, I'm, I'm going to stick with you and, and let's bring the open banking piece in now if we can. So could you expand a little bit more on, on what you found around pre-validation and the role that open banking has to play?
2: Yeah, so I suppose, it, yeah, I mean, open banking pre-validation is one thing that's come out of open banking I and mean, there's a lot of excitement about open banking in the beginning. Perhaps a lot of institutions have felt that the, the, the benefits and the adoption of open banking has been a bit slower than, than institutions had hoped for. But at the same time, uh, it is growing in its adoption so that we're seeing more and more use of open banking uh, with every week and every month that goes by. So perhaps it's not happening as fast as in, in some people and institutions wanted it to happen but it is happening. And the two kind of main open banking cases that we've seen getting the most traction and adoption is, is account visibility, so being able to share account information across institutions, huge improvements in in things like loan applications and account validation. So that's really worked. And the and the payments journey is also worked. You know, so a number of key institutions like HMRC, the the tax man in in the UK has allowed individuals to make their tax payments via an open banking journey, which has made people realize you know, what they can use it for. And there are tremendous business cases around using that open banking payment journey uh, as a really efficient rail for, raising, uh, for, for bringing in money, for collecting funds. So I think that journey will continue. Both of those journeys will continue. Uh, perhaps they haven't happened as fast as everybody wants, but they will happen. Uh, And then the third, of course, is is this pre-validation piece. So Open Banking providing the directory, and we are seeing incredible benefit from the the ability to validate account information prior to making a payment. It's been hugely successful in reducing fraud, hugely successful in reducing misdirected payments, and I think everybody now has realized that this is a key part of the payment journey. Uh, And so... That payment journey actually starts before you make your instruction. It starts when you validate your instructions and then you send your, your instruction. And that's, be, and that's been an enormous benefit. We've seen it adopted very successfully in the UK. We're seeing the European Commission are going to mandate it for instant payments and, and, and all payments, actually, I think, in Europe. And we're seeing a number of other initiatives in other countries that work very well as well. You know, so so it's not just sort of uh, UK and Europe. It's also you see it in Pakistan, you see it in the UAE, you see it in India. There are a number of countries that have got really simple, effective solutions for this.
1: Edward, I've got a question for you. With pre-validation, you see one of the reasons that people feel that maybe open banking hasn't hasn't advanced as much as it should have. And you know, is it is there still an issue, uh, both of you, around fear of that sharing of that data? And does the fact that open banking is being used for good, in terms of pre-validation and fraud prevention, does that make that does that go some way to allaying those fears? And does it, as we see pre-validation become more important and more global, what impact will that have on the acceptance of open banking, not just at the corporate level but also with consumers? Um, so Jenny, yes. I mean, I think the uh, the
2: thing about the open banking journey for a lot of institutions is, and individuals is it's quite a it's quite a big concept to get a hold to get your head around. You know, you're providing access to your account information to a third party, and and that's not something that we've normally done. Well, of course, we have done it. You know, you send your bank statements, you send six months of bank statements so you can open an account or get a mortgage. So we have done it, but it's just this this idea of making an electronic journey is has been a, as something that's not familiar, and we've had to get used to it. And it, obviously, uh, institutions like HMRC, if they, if they adopt it and they support it, we can see that, okay, well, it, well it must be okay, right? Because they're doing it. So that helps. So we see good examples of it being used, which help adoption. And then in terms of pre-validation of account information, again, that's another thing that institutions have been a bit nervous about. So, well, I don't want to share my account information with other parties. That's my data and my customer's data. I'm not sharing it. But... Uh, what institutions have started to realize is actually this is information that's needed. And so it's not practical to hold it. Uh, and actually, there's a benefit in providing it. It reduces fraud and it reduces misdirected payments. So let's let's actually go ahead and, and provide the market with that information. So I think it's just because it's a bit of a step. But it's part of that payments digitalization journey that we, we, we need to go on.
0: Yeah, I think you're right about that HMRC use case. It's something of a of a killer use case, I think, because... It does signify, uh, uh, I think, you know, a, a trusted government department is is using open banking, and and they're using it really effectively, uh, and it's and it's working. You know, people are are using that to to pay their taxes, their self assessment. Uh, so I think that's been a quite a significant step, actually. And then in terms of what you were just saying there, Edward, about the banks being kind of ready to give up. That data. I mean, in a way, it can work really well for, for banks and those kind of incumbent institutions, can't it? Because it does show just how trusted they are. They ha- hold so much of our personal information and information that's so important in other areas of our, of our lives. You know, whether it's applying for a mortgage or, or whatever it might be. So, definitely some some more work to be done there, I think, um, in terms of building that that trust and and hopefully opening up a few more use cases. But Jenya and Edward, thank you so much for those insights. Is there anything else that, that that came out of the report this year that that you're really keen to to flag? Well, I think from my side, before I pass over to Edward, I,
1: I just I think it's all about. We've covered it, you know. It's all about seeing regulation and compliance as a friend. It's about prioritizing that busy roadmap and doing it in tune, in alignment with what your corporate customers are asking for. Um, you know that that way that you'll you'll ensure that your customers don't switch, and you'll you'll also build your reputation as an innovator, which is what banks need to do. It's good PR, it's good PR. But over to you, Edward.
2: Yeah, I think that that alignment of of regulation and customer requirements. I think that, that where where institutions can see that, and I, I I see that coming out in the report with the increasing willingness to adopt solutions. And 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 not this resistance to change that we that we have seen in the past, uh, and this desire to invest for a, for a, a customer a, a good customer experience, which is aligned to the regulatory requirements.
0: Yeah, it's really promising. Actually, some of those results, you know, as you, as you say, not not so much resistance to change, the opportunity seizing that opportunity to innovate, but at the same time, as you pointed out earlier, Jenya, lots of opportunities for banks to to obviously meet those deadlines by. Making the most of of kind of other resources, really. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for coming onto the podcast. Uh, Fascinating as always to hear these these findings. I think it really paints quite a striking picture uh, and a really full picture. You know what's going on globally. So thanks both of you.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Looking
0: forward to the next time. Thanks, Ellie. Thank you. My thanks again there to Edward and to Genya from Bottom Line. And if you want to look out that report, uh, we'll provide a link to it, but it's called The Future of Competitive Advantage in Banking and Payments. Lots of insights to to think about there to mull over. In the meantime, if you'd like to listen back to other recent episodes of Open Banking Expo Unplugged, then you can do so via our on-demand page on the openbankingexpo.com website. Until next time, goodbye.